I remember it like it was yesterday. I was six years old. It was a hot Wednesday afternoon in August. My brother, two sisters, and I were playing in our bedrooms while my parents were sitting on the living room couch watching something on TV. Out of nowhere, with a sense of urgency, my mother called the four of us to come quickly to see what they were watching. We all ran in, not quite knowing what to expect. When we got there, my parents told us to sit down and watch because history was being made. I was not quite sure what they meant by that, but I followed their instructions. I sat and I watched the history that was being made on the television screen. I remember sitting there wondering why so many people, especially black people, were all gathered listening to a man giving a speech. My parents told me they were gathered in Washington, D.C., and they were listening to Martin Luther King, Jr. As I watched, my six-year-old mind was not taking in what he was saying. That which I was taking in, however, was my parents' reactions to what was on the screen. Both were silent and clearly moved by King's words. Occasionally, one of them would utter, that's right. The one television image that captured my attention was seeing the mass of people all singing, we shall overcome. My parents even joined in from their place on the couch. That was the first time I heard that song. And after hearing it that day, I literally never forgot it. Even as a six-year-old, the words stuck with me. Still today, anytime I hear that song, I am transported back to that moment in time, sitting in front of the TV with my family, watching history being made. That moment was for sure a history-making moment for me. After that day, my after that day, any time I heard the name Martin Luther King, my six-year-old ears perked up. It would be later, indeed not until after his assassination, that I would come to fully appreciate the measure of this man and his impact upon my life and indeed my dreams. That day in front of the television was, of course, August 28, 1963. It was the March on Washington. It was the day that Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech to the over 250,000 people gathered at the Lincoln Memorial, and the millions more huddled around their television sets, as we were. This was the event and the speech that for many defined Dr. King's historical significance. It would become, in many respects, his signature speech. It was certainly this speech that would become a part of America's collective consciousness, even if it did not necessarily prick America's moral conscience. Nevertheless, this speech delivered on that August day at the Lincoln Memorial was that which allowed America to admit King into its pantheon of statuesque heroes and to integrate him into the American story. But what does that really mean? Does King's dream have any meaning for America beyond the celebration of it on his, on his birthday? What is the meaning of King's dream for us as we sit here today at Goucher in the age of Obama? These are the questions that I would like to consider with you this evening as perhaps an invitation into further conversation. If we are to appreciate the meaning of King's dream in this age of Obama, 
we must first appreciate the age into which his speech was delivered. It was a divided age in America. It was an age where America was defined by racialized geographic, economic, social, and political splits. Just eight months before King's memorial speech, Alabama Governor George Wallace would declare in his inaugural speech, segregation now, segregation forever. And so true to his words, two months before King stood in front of the Lincoln Memorial, Wallace stood in front of the doors of the administration building at the University of Alabama to prevent black students from entering. Five months before King stood at the podium on the Memorial Mall, he sat in a Birmingham jail writing a letter to religious leaders who told him that his job as a minister was to save souls and not to involve himself in controversial social justice issues. In the May before his speech, the images of black people singing We Shall Overcome played across the television screen. Playing across television screens in the May before his speech were images of firemen using the force of water and policemen using the ferociousness of dogs to stop singing nonviolent protesters in their tracks, many of whom were children. Two months before that day in August, civil rights leader Megger Evers was gunned down before his children in his Mississippi driveway. And so it was that in the wake of the increasing violent and hateful resistance to black protests for rights, on June 11, President John F. Kennedy would give his most significant speech on civil rights. In this speech, he called civil rights a moral issue and announced his plans to introduce a comprehensive civil rights bill to Congress, which he did on June 19th. Seizing his moment in history, Kennedy proclaimed, 100 years, ago of delay, 100 years of delay have passed since President Lincoln freed the slaves, Kennedy said, yet their heirs, their grandsons, are not fully free. They are not freed, he said, from the bonds of injustice. They are not freed from social and economic oppression. In this nation, for all its hopes and all its boasts, Kennedy proclaimed, will not be free until all of its citizens are free. And so it was that on that day, when Martin Luther King Jr. stepped to the podium to deliver the speech that captured the attention of a nation, America was a nation in many respects warring against itself. The warring souls of the black American, as W.E.B. Du Bois so poignantly described, who, by the way, died four days after King's High of a Dream speech. Those warring souls was no less a reflection of the warring soul of America itself. For in the age of King's dream, America was a nation defined by two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, as Du Bois would say, two warring ideals. Was it going to be a slave nation or a free nation? Was it going to be a nation torn asunder by race or a nation unified by its claim that all are created equal? Was it to be a nation separated and unequal by lines of color, or a nation connected by the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness? The problem of the 20th century, Du Bois said, was the problem of the color line. And so it was to a nation divided by a line of color that King spoke about his dream. 
It was therefore fitting on that 1963 August 23rd day that King would deliver his signature speech of the civil rights age at the Lincoln Memorial. For King was facing the same dilemma, asking the same questions that Lincoln faced 100 years before him. Even though Lincoln was not resolved in his own mind that black people were equal to whites, he was resolved that the nation would not survive divided against itself and would not endure, as he said, permanently half free and half slave. Indeed, he believed that slavery was the great sin of the nation and that perhaps the Civil War was God's punishment for such a sin. And so it was that in his first inaugural speech, he implored the nation to be touched by the better angels of our nature and thus to keep the Union united and to find a way to resolve the race issue of that day, slavery. 100 years later, the legacy of slavery remained. Lincoln's battle to end the Civil War was King's battle to advance civil rights. By standing on the Lincoln Memorial on that August 1963 day, King once again tried to arouse the better angels of the nation. In so doing, he ingeniously and seamlessly brought together two visions, America's vision for democracy and black people's vision for freedom. Indeed, it is the case that as King stood at the feet of Lincoln, he stood as an embodiment of two religious narratives that have shaped Americans, America's identity, if not charted its course toward becoming a better nation. One narrative sanctioned America's vision the other narrative fueled the black vision. To understand the significance of King's dream for us, we must then first understand both these religious narratives. So let us begin with the latter, as that provided the fundamental foundation for King's dream, the black religious narrative. To hear King, especially when he was before black audiences, was to know how significant the black faith tradition was to his actions and thought. Drawing upon the theological axioms of this faith tradition, King consistently referred to God as the God of history. Like the, his enslaved ancestors, King asserted that God identified with black people the same way in which God had identified with the Israelites when they were in bondage in Egypt. Frequently comparing the Israelite situation to that of blacks in America, King was confident that the God of history would set black people free from white racist bondage, the way in which God helped free the Israelites from their Egyptian bondage. This is why he would say with passionate resolve to the black people gathered at Mason Temple Church of Christ, God, Church of God in Christ in Mississippi, Tennessee on August 3rd, 1968, the evening before he was assassinated. He said that while he may not get there with them, they as black people would get to the promised land. Moreover, for King, there was no incompatibility between who he was as a minister and his civil rights activity. He, in fact, believed that Jesus' liberating ministry teachings and certainly the crucifixion and resurrection challenged all Christians to protest any form of social injustice. Thus, King said in his first public address, which was during the Montgomery bus boycott. He said this, he said, we are not wrong in what we are doing. 
If we are wrong, he said, God Almighty is wrong. If we are wrong, he said, Jesus of Nazareth was merely a utopian dreamer and never came down to earth. If we are wrong, King said, justice is a lie. And so it was for King that his involvement in the civil rights movement was not a matter of politics. It was a matter of faith. It was a matter of his black faith. It was a matter of a black faith vision in the sacredness of, their free, of, of, in the sacredness of freedom. It was thus this black church faith that brought King to the Lincoln Memorial and that informed his dream. Therefore, it was fitting that King ended his speech that day with these words. He said, and when we allow freedom to ring, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children will be able to join hands and to sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. But it would not be the black church faith that would prick the conscience of America. This king knew. He understood that he would have to tap into the better angels of the nation. And so he did this by calling upon the nation's faith in itself, that which has been identified as American civil religion. American civil religion essentially interprets American history as sacred history. From the very beginning, as the primary articulator of civil religion, Robert Bella tells us, Americans have interpreted their history as having religious meaning. The first Europeans to cross the Atlantic saw their journey from Europe as an exodus journey as they fled the persecution of Europe across the Red Sea of the Atlantic Ocean into the promised land they thought of North America. To them, this was a wilderness in which they were called by God to create, as they said, a new heaven and a new earth. In this regard, America was to be the city on the hill, shining forth as a bright example of God's very kingdom. As long as it remained a democracy upholding its sacred values of justice, equality, and the pursuit of happiness, then it would indeed be that city of the, on the hill. It was this narrative of American civil religion that King drew upon to call America to task for its treatment of its black citizens. And so it was that King proclaimed that America has defaulted, he said, on this promissory note of life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as far as the citizens of color are concerned. King essentially took seriously the prominent symbol on the dollar bill of America as the unfinished pyramid going upward toward the eye of God. For King knew that it would be, it would be forever unfinished if the matter of racial justice was not resolved. And so, fueled with the black faith vision for freedom, and America's religious vision for democracy. King spoke of a dream where one day America would be a nation where people were judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. As we sit here on this evening, 50 years after King articulated his dream, what has become of it? Is it a dream fulfilled or a dream deferred? Just four short years after King gave that speech, he said this in 1967 of his dream. He said, in 1963, I tried to talk to the nation about a dream that I had had. And I must confess 
that not long after talking about that dream, I started seeing it turn into a nightmare. Just a few weeks after I talked about it, it was when four beautiful Negro girls were murdered in a church in Birmingham, Alabama. I watched that dream turn, King said, into a nightmare as I moved through the ghettos of the nation and saw black brothers and sisters perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity and saw the nation doing nothing to grapple with the Negro's problem of poverty. I watched that dream turn into a nightmare, King said, as I watched the war in Vietnam escalating. Yes, I am personally the victim of deferred dreams of blasted hopes. Later that year, in August of 1967, instead of invoking American civil religion to suggest a God that had blessed America, King said this. He said, the judgment of God is on America now. And so what would King say now about his dream in this age of Obama? On January 19, 2009, standing at the Lincoln Memorial, then-President-elect Barack Hussein Obama said this. He said, directly in front of us is a pool that still reflects the dream of a king and the glory of a people who marched and bled so that children might be judged by their character's content. He said, he went on to say, and behind me, watching over the union he saved, sits the man who is in so many ways, made, who in so many ways made this day possible. As President Obama stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial that January night, was he a signal that the nation was no longer divided by the legacy of slavery? Did his election signal a dream fulfilled? Was he a sign that the nation began to listen to their better angels? Was a new age being ushered in? Was this the age of post-racial America, one not divided by lines of color or not? For 10 months prior to this speech on the Lincoln Memorial, then-candidate Obama gave his now iconic speech on race from the city of brotherly love in response to his former pastor claiming much the way King had done 50 years earlier that God condemned America. It was on that March day in Philadelphia that candidate Obama recognized that we were still a nation divided by race. Quoting from William Faulkner, he said, the past isn't dead and buried. In fact, it isn't even past. Obama continued by explaining that as Americans, we need to remind ourselves that so many of the disparities that exist in the African-American community today can be directly traced, he said, to the inequalities passed on from an earlier generation that suffered under the brutal legacy of slavery in Jim Crow. Those inequalities Obama went on to specify as inequalities in educational opportunities and economic opportunities, especially for black men. He spoke further of the wealth and the income gap, income gap between blacks and whites, as well as the lack of basic services, such as parks for kids to play in, garbage pickup, adequate housing options, as indicators, Obama said, that the nation was still a nation divided by race. 
And so it is that the age of Obama is an age, yes, where the color line persists. For this is an age in which the president, no doubt because of the color of his skin, is ridiculed for winning the Nobel Peace Prize, is called a liar from the floor of Congress, has fingers wagged in his face, and has his citizenship questioned. And while one might suggest that such actions signal only the misdeeds of a few and not a nation divided, then one should consider that according to most recent statistics, white Americans have 22 times more wealth than blacks, that black, the black unemployment rate is double that of whites. And of course, we know that the industrial prison complex is overwhelmingly disproportionately sustained by the incarceration of black males. Audre Lorde once said, our silence does not protect us. King put it this way. He said, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Not talking about race does not make the matter of race disappear. And so it is safe to say that while this may be a post-racial age in terms of our public discourse, it is not a post-racial age in terms of our life realities. Just over a month ago, President Obama stood at the Capitol where he delivered his second inaugural address, clearly inspired by the pleas of Lincoln and the dream of King. Obama reminded us that while we the people, he said, affirm the promises of our democracy, we have yet to fulfill those promises of tolerance and opportunity, human dignity and justice. He reminded us that a nation founded on principles of liberty and equality could not survive, quoting Lincoln, half slave and half free. And so President Obama challenged we the people to be guided by the same principles of those who fought for their freedom at Seneca Falls, Selma, and Stonewall, as well as those, he said, who left footprints along the mall of the Lincoln Memorial to hear a king proclaim that our individual freedom is inextricably bound to the freedom of every soul on earth. And so it was that President Obama told all of us in this generation that this was our time to make our own history, to claim essentially King's dream, a dream of a black vision for freedom, a dream of an American society for democracy. It was our time, Obama reminded us, to listen to our better angels. And so, finally, what does that mean for each of us as we sit here at Goucher College on this day to claim the dream of King? What does it mean for us to claim King's dream in this age of Obama? Martin Luther King Jr. once said, nothing in the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. As we sit here in this place of higher learning, privileged with the opportunity to acquire an education, we are challenged to not add to a more dangerous world filled with hate, injustice, and inequality. As a community of privileged learners, it is our challenge to be not a community defined by sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity, 
but instead one defined by thoughtful reflection and considered wisdom. What does this mean? It means that our Gaucho community must be a place where each person's story and history is respected in and out of the classroom. It means letting go of the privilege of not knowing about the stories, the struggles, the history of those who are different from ourselves. It means letting go of a privileged way of seeing and being in the world and allowing ourselves to be challenged by diverse ways of seeing and being in the world. It means being aware of the multiple stories of struggle and triumph that are in our world. We have come to associate the educated person as one who knows when, in fact, the educated person is one who recognizes that which they do not know. It is only in a willingness to admit one's lack of knowledge about the complex and rich stories of others in the world that true education can begin. And it is with this humble admission that the first step toward fulfillment of King's dream can take place. Goucher, knowledge changes the way we live in the world. It shapes the way we see ourselves, each other, and God. It fosters our relationships, human and divine. It has the capacity to richly complicate our realities and to help us appreciate that there is more than one way of thinking about, perceiving, and acting in the world. Knowledge compels never-ending conversations with different bodies of knowers. If we, as a Goucher College family, are going to be a part of changing this world for the better and disrupting the way people are marginalized, mistreated, and discarded by systems and structures defined by race, gender, nationality, sexuality, and more, then we, as a community, must change the way we know and what we know. Just as our silence won't protect us, neither will our not knowing. And so it is that we must take advantage of every opportunity in our comings and goings, in our dialogues in and out of the classroom to be challenged by what we don't know, and thus in the process discovering the dreams of those who are not us. Martin Luther King Jr. said some 40 years ago that his dream had been deferred for far too long. And so it is now our time, the time for you and me to take up the dream, the dream of a world where indeed all of God's children, black and white, male and female, LGBTQ and not LBGTQ, immigrant and non-immigrant. Now is the time to take up the dream where all of God's children can indeed be free. Thank you.